It's great to be back with all of you this morning to continue where we left off in our Forerunners of the Faith curriculum. We are starting in Lesson 2 today. Lesson 2, titled From Pentecost to Patmos. Subtitle is Peter, Paul, and the First Century Church. We're still in the Part 1 section of our book, The Apostolic Age, which just covers the first century of church history. So we still have a few more chapters in our workbooks before we move on to part two. But nevertheless, it's good that we're slowly but surely making our way through part one and looking forward to seeing how we continue to learn about church history over the next several weeks and maybe even months. Now, um, before I open up in a word of prayer, I do need a volunteer to read the key passage right at the top left-hand corner of Lesson 2 starting page, it's Acts 1-8, and Sai's going to read that. Um, so let me open up in prayer. Everybody should be flipping open to Lesson 2. And after I pray, Sai is going to read Acts 1-8 as our memory verse, our key passage for the next several weeks in Lesson 2. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, though, as we begin. Father, the pinnacle of our existence is to worship you, to know you and enjoy you forever. And God, forgive us for the times we take for granted the opportunity to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ on the Lord's Day to to do what we've been created to do, to sing songs of praise to you, to pray to you, to talk together, encourage one another in our faith, to sit under the teaching of your word. Lord God, I pray that all of those things that we do over the course of today would be pleasing in your sight, that they would spring forth from hearts of faith. Father, I pray for the young men and women in here this morning, uh, as we learned about from the documentary yesterday, that, that the act of listening to your word being taught, the act of participating in corporate worship is to be done in faith, is to be grabbed onto by faith. It's not passive, it's active. And I pray, Father, that you would captivate every mind here this morning so that they would actively listen, that they would critically think and interact with what we're going to be talking about this morning, and that they would be led by your Holy Spirit to know how they need to apply this truth to their lives. Father, I pray for me this morning, Lord, that your Spirit would be the ultimate teacher working through me. May I not say anything that is biblically inaccurate. May I accurately unpack the truths that we're going to be discussing this morning. And Father, we just ask ultimately that you'd be glorified in our midst. And as we leave this place this morning, may we be changed different than when we came in here. We love you, God. We give you thanks for this time we have together. We commit this study to you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Sai, go ahead and read for us Acts 1.8, and then we will jump right in. Jesus thought as apostles, but you received the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witness both in Jerusalem and all Judah and Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. Very good. So we're going to come back to that key passage here uh, in a few moments. Uh, there's going to be some additional commentary on it in our lesson. But uh, you should have received a packet from me. It says New Testament timeline at the top left-hand corner of page 1. 
And the source that I got this packet from is the English, uh, the English Standard Version Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible. It's a big, thick Bible. It's got a lot of really good notes and insights to help you understand uh, the background information of each book, help you understand uh, some of the historical context regarding uh, different events that took place throughout biblical history. And um, it's got actually some verse-by-verse commentary as well to help you understand uh, what is being said in specific parts of the Scripture. So if you're looking for a good study Bible, uh, I heartily commend the ESV Study Bible to you. It's a good resource to have on your um, bookshelf and to use as you study God's Word. But today, uh, I want us to look at some of the highlights of this New Testament timeline. We're not going to read every single a year or event that took place from uh, the beginning of what is understood as first century church history, which actually starts a little bit before the first century on to the end. But I do want us to just take note of some of the key high points of the first century, uh, just so we can have uh, kind of a broader umbrella or uh, understanding of what's going on as we work our way through key points of the book of Acts, which is really uh, a survey of the first 30 to 35 years of Christian history. That is, from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven and to the time that the book of Acts ends in Acts 28, uh, sometime around the early to mid-60s. Now, um, if you'll notice on that timeline that I gave you, I'm going to read the uh, paragraph right at the top, and then we're just going to go through some of the high points on that timeline. And if any of you guys have any questions or comments on this timeline, That'll be a a good opportunity for you to to express those. So notice, though, that paragraph right at the top. It says, The following chart provides a detailed New Testament timeline. Most of the dates can be determined precisely by correlating biblical events with extensive historical documents and archaeological evidence. Dates with an asterisk denote approximate or alternative dates. The extensive external confirmation of New Testament dates and events encouraged great confidence in the truth and historicity of both the Old and New Testaments. So anytime you see an asterisk next to a date, this is a pure approximation. doesn't mean it exactly happened in that particular year. Uh, This is just a, a, a rough estimate based on key historical and archaeological evidence that can be found Um. in in and around the geographical setting where these events took place. So you'll notice there Jesus is born in Bethlehem around 5 B.C. You know, that's actually disputed amongst uh, conservative Bible scholars. Some want to say that he was born maybe closer to the year 3 or 2 B.C., Um, maybe even closer to the year 0 B.C., just depending on where you land on some of the dating. But... um, I would say the majority of conservative Bible scholars are going to put Christ's birth around the year 5 B.C. Now, we commonly think of B.C. as meaning before Christ, and that is how the church has historically understood it. The reason for the discrepancy here in dating is because during the Middle Ages, there was some some mix-ups with how the calendar was put together. Uh, If you've listened to the lectures that correspond with Lesson 2, Dr. Buznitz gives a very detailed overview of how that occurred. I'm not going to get into those weeds for you all this morning. Uh, But nevertheless, there was a mix-up with the calendar during the Middle Ages, which is why you have 
the BC era um, <laughs> being when Jesus was born and came into the world. So uh, we have every reason to believe that Jesus came into the world at least three to five years before the year zero, as it were. So uh, that's something important for you to know. 4 BC, Jesus is an infant. We find in Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23, that Jesus' family flees to Egypt to escape from Herod's plan to kill Jesus, and then Herod eventually dies. Uh, And after returning from Egypt, after being warned by an angel in a vision, Jesus' family returns to Nazareth, a small village in southern Galilee, and that's where Jesus would be raised. Go down to the year around 8 AD. 8 AD. Jesus is now 12 years old, roughly. And this is where we find in Luke 2, 41 to 50, he interacts with teachers in the temple. Remember, he gets lost from his parents. Um, they wonder where he's at. They return back to Jerusalem. And they find Jesus there interacting with teachers. And all of the teachers are just in awe of Christ's ability to retain and understand and articulate divine truth in the scriptures that happened around the year 8 a.d now from the year 8 a.d roughly to about the year 28 to 30 jesus is working as a carpenter in nazareth you know that from matthew 13 55 and mark 6 3 that he was involved in carpentry work um and we really don't have any more details about what jesus was up to most conservative historians believe that joseph would have passed away at some point during this time period which means that jesus would have basically assumed the role of a father figure in his household he would have led them in uh, their their spiritual uh, devotions and in their spiritual um, acts of, of expression to god he would have been the spiritual authority in the household he would have been the sole provider or at least a, a significant provider in his house by virtue of Joseph having passed away and by virtue of Jesus being a carpenter, he would have been providing for his family in that capacity. Um, so just imagine having a perfect father figure, a perfect spiritual leader in your household to guide you and to look over you and provide for you uh, basically for about a, a two-decade time period or maybe a little bit less than that depending on when Joseph passed away. Um, but yeah, that's about all we can deduce from that period of time. Between the years 28 and 29 AD, John the Baptist comes onto the scene, begins his ministry baptizing in the Jordan River. And then from the year uh, 28 or 29 to the year 30, depending on, again, just these are, these are rough estimates here, Jesus would have began his ministry in Judea after having been baptized by John. He eventually focuses his ministry efforts in Galilee. Um, We know that Christ's ministry on earth was approximately three full years uh, before he was crucified and raised from the dead three days later after being crucified. You'll notice there at the bottom of page one, that would have taken place, again, depending on when you date his birth, uh, either 30 or 33 AD. Again, most conservative scholars are going to go about the year 30 on the date of his crucifixion and resurrection. Now go ahead and flip over to page two. Would have been around then, between the year 30 and 33 AD, when this event in Acts 1-8 would have taken place. You would have had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Christ's earliest disciples at Pentecost. 
We're going to learn a little bit more about that in just a few moments. But that's when that event is taking place, right around the year 30 to 33 A.D., give or take. Um, a few years there, depending on where you date Christ's birth. Uh, shortly thereafter, within about a year or two uh, thereafter, uh, if you take a 33 A.D. Um, dating of Christ's death and resurrection, or if you take a date of 30, about three to four years thereafter, Paul, he has his Damascus Road experience. We find that uh, recorded to us in Acts 9 and commented on in Galatians 1, 15 to 16. And it wasn't long after that before Paul begins ministering in Damascus and Arabia, and he does this for a period of three years. During that time when Paul meets with Peter in Jerusalem, uh, formally gets introduced to him in, uh, as, as recorded to us in Acts 9 and Galatians 1. And then Paul goes on to minister in Syria, Tarsus, and Cilicia between the years 37 and 45 A.D. We know between that period of time, notice there, between the years 40 and 45, we know that James wrote his letter that we've been studying now for over the past year. Um, he wrote that letter in the early 40s. That would have been the first letter, first New Testament book written, having taken place within just 10 to 15 years tops after Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven. So you have the New Testament canon beginning its formation there between the years 40 and 45 A.D. A few extra um, significant dates here that we need to take note of. Um we see James, the brother of John, killed in Acts 12. Peter's in prison in Acts 12.3. That takes place between the years 40 and 45. And we see King Herod Agrippa being killed in Acts 12.23 in the year 44. Scroll down to 44 to 47. You'll notice there on page 2, Paul has his second visit to Jerusalem. There's a time of famine in the land. Uh Around that period of time, he also goes on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And they go from Antioch, which becomes basically the headquarters of the early church. And they travel from Antioch to Cyprus to Sidia, Iconium, and Lystra. You can find that recorded between Acts 13 and Acts 14. 48 AD, we have Paul's first letter written, uh, Galatians, possibly written from Antioch. A cross-reference to when the events around his authoring of the book of Galatians are documented for us in Acts 14, 26-28. And then we have one of the most important events in the first century um, church, year 48 or 49. This is the Jerusalem Council. Can anybody tell me off the top of your head what was discussed at the Jerusalem Council, why it was so important? All right. Well, this is very important to keep in mind. I um, would encourage you to commit it to memory if you can. Essentially, at the Jerusalem Council, there was a controversy, controversy that had brewed over the past several years, and that controversy centered around this question. Is it enough to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved, or do we need to believe in Jesus and add certain aspects of Old Covenant Judaism to our faith as Christians. Namely, do we need to be circumcised? Do men need to be circumcised? As men had to be circumcised during the Old Covenant. And did we need to, even if we're Gentiles, 
as believers, do we need to go and implement certain aspects of Old Covenant Judaism into our Christian religious experience? Uh, Not just circumcision, but dietary law, uh, ceremonial, um, holidays, feasts, festivals. Do we need to really force Christians to participate in those things in addition to believing in Jesus? And the outcome of the Jerusalem Council, as we find documented in Galatians and as we see in Acts 15, is that Christians are not to be bound to any old covenant rituals or religious practices. We are justified. We are declared righteous by a holy God solely and exclusively through faith in Jesus Christ. That was the outcome of the Jerusalem Council. And we see that reiterated by Paul of Galatians. Now, if you flip over to page 3, a few more important dates to take note of here. Between the years 49 and 51, Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians from Corinth. He eventually goes to Rome. Between the years 50 and 54, he eventually goes to his third missionary journey from Antioch. Again, the church headquarters there in the first century church. He goes from Antioch to Galatia, Phrygia, Ephesus, Macedonia, and Greece, recorded in Acts 18 to 21 on that third missionary journey. Paul spends three years during that missionary journey ministering in Ephesus as we see documented in Acts 19. The first gospel would have been written sometime around that period of time, the year 53 to 55. The gospel of Mark As most Bible commentators and historians will note, the Gospel of Mark was heavily influenced by the Apostle Peter. Um, It's been well said that the Gospel of Mark was really just a collection of the memoirs of Peter. And um, some scholars even speculate whether or not Matthew, a Hebrew, or excuse me, an Aramaic account of the Gospel of Matthew may have been in circulation, but the Greek translation of that Gospel would come within a decade, and then eventually from there you'd have Luke formulated in the early 60s, and then John, depending on when you date his writings, either in the late 60s or 90s. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. But Mark, the first gospel, produced between the years 53 and 55 A.D. Another important date, range, a date range to keep in mind, Nero begins his tyrannical reign over the Roman Empire in the year 54 and would do so until his suicidal death in the year 68. Paul writes 2 Corinthians from Macedonia between 55 and 56. He's eventually imprisoned and transferred to Caesarea between the years 57 and 59. He gets released, and then he takes a voyage to Rome, where he's shipwrecked for three months on the island of Malta, and that's really where the book of Acts ends. The book of Acts ends around the year 60 to 62 A.D. Uh, the, the events recorded on Malta are recorded between Acts 27 and 28. And then we start getting into a little bit more of a sporadic overview of what happened in the first century. Because really, from a first century historical perspective on the history of the church, the book of Acts is the most detailed account that we have. We do have the writings of Josephus. We do have some other secular historians. But the uh, once the book of Acts comes to conclusion... We find a little bit less details provided for us regarding that period of time just because there wasn't any other historians really tracking the history of the church 
as Luke did, to the level of uh, specificity that he did. Now notice there, bottom of page 3, the letter to the Hebrews is written at some point between the year 60 and 70 A.D. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of the book of James, was executed in the year 62. Peter writes his first letter from Rome in the year 63. There's several books written in 62 to 64 uh, A.D. This is when Paul's in prison. He writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Paul, of course, uh, would have been a traveling companion with Luke, who at this time would have been putting the finishing touches on the book of Acts and, of course, his gospel record, Luke. Remember, the gospel of Mark and possibly the gospel of Matthew would have been in circulation by this time. So Luke Luke would have had exposure to several of um, the things that were recorded in the gospel of Matthew and Mark. He would have used those in compiling his gospel. He would have also interviewed several people who were um, involved directly with the life and uh, ministry of Christ. And we have the gospel of Luke produced sometime in the early 60s. Now the temple... This is very important because the Jews placed great stock on the temple. Temple work was completed in the years 63 and 64 AD. Keep that in mind as we go a little bit further on this timeline. Um, The Christians began experiencing intense persecution in the year 64. There There was a fire that broke loose in the Roman Empire. Uh, it is speculated that the Emperor Nero actually started the fire himself because he didn't like the architecture in Rome in certain places, so he just wanted to start from scratch. And he blamed the Christians for starting the fire. So you see a seismic increase in persecution in the early 60s for Christians. Moving down now between the years 64 and 67 AD, Peter writes, Second Peter, the, right, uh, uh, the letter of Jude is written. Paul writes 2 Timothy during this time. And then in the year 67, with persecution increasing in the Roman Empire, John migrates to Ephesus with Mary, the mother of Jesus, where he would remain until his imprisonment in Pat- at Patmos. Mary would likely die shortly after moving to Ephesus uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. And then in the year 70, one of the most important dates in the first century, another date to commit to memory. In the year 70, the Roman Emperor Titus begins a five-month siege on Jerusalem and destroys the temple and a vast majority of the holy city. The prophecies recorded by Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Olivet Discourse passages, Matthew Uh, 24, Mark 13, and I believe Luke 21. Um, Jesus predicted that the temple was going to be destroyed and it came to pass within 30 to 35 years after his prediction. The Roman Empire destroyed Jerusalem and in doing so, to this day, um, Jewish adherents have not been able to really follow their own Old Covenant laws, their own religious practices, because it requires a temple to do many of those things. This was a huge, monumental moment in first century history. Last few dates I want to uh, draw your attention to now. Uh, between the years 85 and 95, 
Uh, it's speculated that John would have written 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Ephesus and his gospel. Um, now, you do need to be aware that there is conservative and uh, well-respected Bible scholars and church historians who do put the writings of John at the end of the 60s. There's a lot of debate as to when John wrote his letters, his gospel, and the book of Revelation. Um, there probably tends to be more who put it between the years 85 and 95, but do be aware that they could have been written at the end of the 60s AD, which means you could have had the whole New Testament canon completed within 30 to 35 years after Christ's ascension into heaven, and you would have had all of that taking place before the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD. And of course, John would eventually die. Most scholars put his death between the years 95 and 100 AD. And that takes us through, again, a very macro-level, 30,000-foot flyover overview of first-century church history. Does anybody have any questions or comments on that before we begin our look into Lesson 2? And that's a pretty in-depth introduction. But I would encourage you to keep this um, packet, maybe even bring it as we go through the first century, because some of the things we're going to be talking about are going to have direct correlation to that packet. Now, with that said, if you have a pen, go ahead and get that ready because we're going to be working through lesson two now, starting with Roman numeral one titled Acts in the Apostolic Age. Acts in the Apostolic Age. Now, who knows who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, right? I've heard somebody say Luke. That's going to be your first blank. The book of Acts was written by Luke. Now, was Luke an apostle? He was a doctor, yes. That is right. Was he an apostle, though? And what is an apostle? Just by way of review, I want to see where, you're, where you guys are at in your memory. She was a little apostle, Yeah, I mean, every Christian's a little apostle. Um, was not a big A apostle. So again, uh, so Wits, Wits getting into the distinction between a, a big A and a little A apostle. Does anybody want to comment on that distinction? Anybody remember really the, the, the key uh, distinction there? Yeah, that's right. right. The word apostle just means messenger or one who is sent. So in a sense, every Christian is a small A apostle. And there's several Christians who are called apostles in the first century that were not part of the original 11 and then Matthias the 12th big A apostle and then Paul the 13th and final big A apostle. So you have a distinction there between those who were directly appointed by Christ to be the foundation or to lay the foundation of the church and then you have the other small A apostles which is what you and I really are. I mean any Christian that has been sent out by God to be uh, faithful to fulfilling the Great Commission is a small a apostle. So um, we are a messenger. We are one who has been sent. And uh, it's important to keep that distinction in mind um, as you read through the book of Acts and as you uh, even think about your own responsibility as a Christian. But first paragraph there, um, thank you, Whit, for the answer to the first blank. The book of Acts was written by Luke. Um, Busnitz notes that it is a sequel to his gospel and begins shortly after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word acts, this is where the name comes from, the word acts refers to the acts or deeds of the apostles. 
The book of Acts focuses on the work of God accomplished through the apostles during the first few decades of the early church. Now, second paragraph. Acts covers, I said it earlier, but I want to see if y'all are paying attention. Acts covers approximately how many years of church history? Let me hear you. Let me. I'm gonna hear some answers. How many years does Acts cover regarding church history? About thirty. About thirty to thirty-five years. That's correct. So yeah, you can put thirty to thirty-five years as your answer there to the second blank. And um, what were those dates? So thirty to thirty-five years. What were the approximate dates? When did Jesus when, when do we think Jesus likely ascended into heaven? About 30 to 33, Michael, very good. So, if so if, if the book of Acts is about 30 to 35 years, where how would we put the the date range there? So you'd start in 30 or 33 to 60 to about 65, 68, somewhere in there. Yep. Right. So, yeah, uh, Acts covers approximately 30 to 35 years of the history of the early church from about 30 to 65 A.D. That's a good range there. It's a good, reputable range. And as we mentioned earlier, it's the first book of church history that's ever been written. And I like what Buznitz notes here, my teacher's guide. He says, unlike any other church history book, Acts was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is the only inspired account of church history in the entire world. It's ever been written. So um, people that say church history isn't important, it was obviously enough, it was important enough to God to inspire an entire book about church history. So um, church history is certainly important to God and we should study it. Now, third paragraph. This gets back to our key passage on Acts 1.8. Um, I don't know if you'll have this paragraph. I, I'm going to read it from my teacher's guide, though, because it's very important. Um, Buznitz notes that in Acts 1.8, just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he instructed his disciples to be his witnesses from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the world. Those geographic locations serve as an outline of the book of Acts. In Acts 1-7, through the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached in Jerusalem and Judea. In Acts 8, the good news comes to Samaria Then, starting with the conversions of Paul in Acts 9 and Cornelius in Acts 10, the gospel is taken throughout the Gentile world. So the the way in which you can track the progression of the gospel in the book of Acts is found in Acts 1.8. It's really the thesis of the entire book. The gospel is going from the apostles, Jesus' witnesses, verse verse 8 of chapter 1, it's going forth from them first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to all the ends of the world. Now, um, I do have a question for group discussion. In what sense do you believe we can say that the Great Commission has been fulfilled based on this uh, characteristic from the book of Acts? Let me ask you this. Insofar as Acts 1.8 has been written, has that text been fulfilled? Has the, did the gospel go 
to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then uh, to the nations, the Gentiles. That's, that's the Greek there. So, yeah, in a sense, right, in a sense, Acts 1-8 got fulfilled in the first century. However, now and this is very important, first century Christians had no idea about all the people groups that existed outside of the Roman Empire. Right, the Roman Empire, that was the known world at that period in history. But there were people all over the globe that had no idea about anything that was happening over there. So, in, although in one sense, Acts 1-8 has been fulfilled, the Great Commission has not been fulfilled. Right? There's peoples, even to this day, it's estimated, I think, some 2 billion people, maybe, maybe upwards of 3 billion people, have never even heard the gospel We're the most sophisticated, technologically advanced period in human history, and yet between 25 and 33% of the world's population has not heard the gospel. They don't have a Christian represented in their people group. We know someday they will. God is going to redeem a people from every people group in the world. Every people group will be represented in the kingdom of heaven someday. Um, And we know Christ will not come back before every single people group has a representative in his kingdom until every person for whom he died is saved. So on the one hand, we rejoice at the faithfulness of God in fulfilling Acts 1-8 in the first century, but yet we also recognize we have work to do as the church until the return of Christ as we take this gospel to the people groups who have yet to hear the good news of Christ. Let me move now. Further down to the next two blanks that should be in your workbook. Buznitz notes that um, if you read about Jesus' disciples in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find that they often lack faith and courage. But in the book of Acts, they undergo a radical transformation. Peter and the other apostles boldly proclaim the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. They are willing to do so even when it results in persecution, suffering, and death. The radical transformation of the disciples is the result of two history-defining events. And what do you think those events were? What do you think think caused these men who, when Jesus was arrested, they ran for their lives? They didn't want anything to do with them at that moment, except for John, and even he kept himself at a distance. Right? But what do you think accounted for the radical transformation? What, what, what caused the change? They went from being cowards to courageous. Resurrection of Jesus. That was one of the two. Very good. Imagine this. If you saw the resurrected Jesus and you thought back to the three years of Him telling you all the things that He was going to do and it didn't make any sense to you during those three years, but now it makes perfect sense and He's standing in front of you, would that not just revive your soul, would that not just motivate you to be bold and courageous? Say, man, I've got nothing to fear. Even if I die, I'm going to be with my Lord and he's already overcome sin and death just like he said he would. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to proclaim the gospel. But I mean, it changes everything. The resurrection changed. It changed everything for them and it changes everything for us when we become saved, when, when God rescues us from sin and from eternal judgment. And that's exactly what 
he does in salvation. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's one of those events. What do you think the second one was that accounts for their transformation? Michael. Pentecost. Pentecost. That's exactly right. That's the second one. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, Buznitz briefly notes that as eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, the apostles testify to the truth about him doing so through the Holy Spirit's power. Now, um, I do have a question for you regarding the Holy Spirit, and don't know if you've ever thought about it before. How does the Holy Spirit being outpoured at Pentecost, how is that different from how believers prior to Pentecost experienced the Holy Spirit? Well, yeah, that's true. They, there, there was um, a, a powerful demonstration of those believers speaking in earthly languages that they previously did not know, uh, in which they used those languages to proclaim the gospel. That's certainly true. But my question is, if I'm an old, let's say I lived a thousand years before Pentecost, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, right? I'm, I'm trusting that the, the Redeemer, the Messiah who is to come, is going to accomplish everything that I need to be made right with God. Say that's me. Do I have the Holy Spirit? Or, and, at what, and if I do, how is that different than what we find from Pentecost on to where we're at now in 2021? That's the question that I'm, that I'm aiming for here. I don't know if you all have ever thought about that question. There's a lot of debate on that. Um, I have no problem giving you my view, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Okay, so let me let, let's walk through some things together. Let's just think critically, and that'll that'll get that'll at least give you an idea of where I'm at here. So we know that every sinner who's ever been saved throughout redemptive history is saved in the same way. They're spiritually dead. They have to be made spiritually alive by God in order to exercise saving faith. So the Holy Spirit is active in the same way at every point in redemptive history in the sense of saving spiritually dead sinners, bringing them from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Okay, so the Holy Spirit works the same in justification, salvation. Um, we also know throughout the Old Testament that believers are sanctified. They're, they're, they, are, they grow in godliness. So Spirit sanctifies the believer in the same way throughout Old Testament history as we know now in New Testament history. Yet, the spiritual gifting that we see from Pentecost onward, that is where the difference resides. That's an important distinction. Prior to Pentecost, only a select few people that we see explicitly recorded in the Old Testament have a, 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 a spirit-empowered gifting to fulfill something that God had called them to fulfill. Think about the kings in Old Testament Israel. They would receive an anointing of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the technical term for that, a theocratic anointing. They're, they're the king over Israel, so they receive an anointing, a special outpouring of the Spirit to help them accomplish a task. Think about Samson. Uh, another figure who had this, um, this special Holy Spirit endowment to fulfill a task throughout Old Testament history. Not every believer received that type of empowerment prior to Pentecost. 
The reason for that is because Pentecost is it's doing something radical in the life of God's people. Whereas in the Old Covenant, prior to Pentecost, only select believers had a spirit pour, had the spirit poured out upon them to carry out a divine task. Now on this side of Pentecost, every believer receives the spirit poured out upon them, and now every believer is gifted for ministry. Every believer now has the fullness of the Holy Spirit in terms of their equipping for ministry. If you're a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift that God has graciously endowed you with to serve Him and serve His people in the local church. And the reality is most Christians, really, they get a, they get a plurality of gifts. They get a mixture of different gifts. And those gifts are to be used for God's glory and for the edification, the building up, the service to the local church. That's really what makes Pentecost so radical and so great. Is now every Christian's empowered for ministry. It's not just a select few people. So while the Holy Spirit works the same way in the Old and New Testament, in the salvation of sinners, the justification of sinners, the sanctification of sinners, that is the conformity of that redeemed sinner into the likeness of Christ or into deeper measures of personal holiness. That's the same in Old Testament, New Testament. Post-Pentecost, the believer is now equipped and empowered for special acts of ministry. So rejoice. Rejoice in your gifting that God has given you after being saved. That's why the local church is so important too, if I might just add that. Where else could we practice our gifts um, that God's given us? Who else could we build up with those gifts if not alongside other believers in the local church? All right, so we continue now. Very bottom uh, of my first page here. Um, And you'll notice there's probably a couple blanks for your workbook as well. We see that... um, Because the disciples had been sent by Jesus as his witnesses, they are known as apostles, meaning sent ones or messengers. And we talked about that earlier. That's the definition of an apostle. It's a sent one or a messenger. Buznitz, continuing on that thought, writes that the apostles of Jesus Christ were a select group of Jesus' disciples limited to those who had been Physical eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. These are big A apostles. Big A apostles were a select group of Jesus' disciples who were those who had seen Christ with their physical eye and they were directly appointed by him. And as we know elsewhere in scripture, they were able to confirm their apostolic authority through signs and wonders, through miracles. That's how they could confirm that they were truly big A apostles. They could could perform miracles on command. Um, Paul says that he was the last person to see the resurrected Christ in 1 Corinthians 15.8, which means that no one after Paul can meet the criteria necessary to be a big A apostle. Paul says, I'm the last one that Jesus personally, visibly, appeared to, 1 Corinthians 15.8. So my question to you guys is this. 
In light of that testimony from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.8, how should we respond to people who have claimed to have seen the resurrected Christ, have had heavenly visions, or claim in our contemporary setting to be big A apostles? How should we respond to such claims? Point back to scripture, absolutely. Can never go wrong there. No, they'll be they'll be offended by that. Yeah. Amen. It's very good, Hannah. You know, uh, there's several churches in our area. That uh, if you look at their their sign outside of the church, it'll say they're led by Apostle so and so. And you know, every time I see such a sign, I think, man, uh, if that were to be true, then you know we're we're really missing out here at First Baptist Edna. I mean, could you imagine choosing to sit under me or Brother Robert when you had a big A Apostle you could go and sit under potentially? I mean, you're missing out if if that's the case. Um, so yeah, just echoing what Hannah said. Um, if you've got people claiming that they're a big A apostle or that their teacher's a big A apostle, you need to take them through the biblical criteria for, for fulfilling that office and just let them know. Say, hey, with, with, with all love and respect to you, um, it doesn't appear consistent with the evidence of Scripture that somebody can f- fulfill that office after the death of the original apostles, um, big A apostles, that is. Another thought, too, if I may just say, um, nobody would ever say that people can't or don't have really incredible experiences where maybe they see a vision. Um, Jesus potentially shows up in a dream. Nobody says that's not possible or that it can't happen. But be very careful of those who make a big deal of those visions, of those dreams, of those experiences to the point where they're writing books about it or to the point where that's all they want to talk about and never talk about the rest of Scripture. Because in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, hey, I went to the third heaven. I've seen it, but I'm not going and talking about it. He had humility in his experience. He would rather talk about the Scripture and talk about objective truth than subjective realities. Let me read that passage for you. It's very, very important. Again, there's a lot of people. When I was growing up, the big thing was 90 minutes in heaven. Heaven is for real. All these people making millions and millions of dollars off of these books and movies. And hey, possible was true. It's possible, right? Anything's possible. But... Be very weary of such people who all they want to talk about is their experience, but they don't want to go to the Scripture, and they, 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 they don't ever want to talk about objective truth. They just want to talk about subjective um, experience. Listen to this. This is Paul. Boasting is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago Whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. 
And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from boasting so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that, I, that Paul had, the revelations of the third heaven, the revelations of the glory of God in that experience that he had. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What's Paul saying there? I'm not going to go and boast in subjective experience as great as those things are. I'm going to boast in God's work through my weaknesses, through my hardships, because God, His grace, His character, His truth is infinitely more valuable than anything I can testify of from subjective experience. As great as it was, as much as it mattered to Him. Objective truth, suffering, those things are more important to Paul than subjective personal experience. And that's where we need to find ourselves, my friends. If you suffer in the Christian life, that is God's grace upon you. Because God wants to keep you humble. He wants to remind you that this world is not your home. That your life and your existence is for the glory of God and not for the glory of yourself. When you face persecution, suffering, hardships, trials, difficulties in your Christian life, that is evidence of God's grace upon you, His favor upon you. And like Paul, you will be able to say, I praise God and I boast in my weaknesses because His grace is sufficient for me and His power is made perfect in my weaknesses. Um, That is very hard to understand when you're going through hardships. Does it make the hardships easy? Does it make them fun? But it's a reminder. God is accomplishing a purpose in you in that season that he's got you in. And that should be an encouragement for us. Now, if you flip over, I don't know if it's on the next page or not, but um, the next blank, talked about this earlier. To authenticate their message, God gave the apostles the ability to perform miracles. These supernatural signs, excuse me, these supernatural signs demonstrated that they were God's messengers and that their testimony about Jesus Christ was true. And I think that's where we're going to leave off today. It's 1030 and um, I want to make sure that we don't get too much deeper into this so we can do justice to the uh, contents 
I do have one question, though, for discussion. One question for discussion. We're not going to go any further in the workbook, but I do want us to talk about this just to track with your ability to retain what we've been talking about. Um, do we have every book or letter ever written by the apostles in Scripture? That's part one to this question for group discussion. I want to, I want to ask you that. Every, every book or letter that an apostle wrote to Christians during the first century, do we have that in the Bible? No. Correct. We do not. Right? We don't have it. So part two to that question. So why do you think God did not include those writings in the canon of Scripture? If we don't have every letter, every book that was written, it's a good thought. Um, some people would actually say that. Um, I, I tend to think that they were inspired by virtue of the apostolic office. Um, so anything that the apostles would have written regarding doctrine or um, religious expression would have been inspired by God. That, was, that, 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 that gifting came with their authority, with their office that Christ gave them. Some, though, would agree with you, Ashton. It's a very good thought. Um, any other thoughts on that? Could have a book big enough, yeah? There's a lot written. That could certainly be a very, a very uh, valid point for that. Let me ask you this. Those are really good thoughts. Um, there, and there might be, uh, I, I tend to, to think Thomas agree with you there. Um, did God know from eternity past which books would be in the canon? Right? He knew everything, right? Old Testament, New Testament, 66 books. So let me just tell you, let me just, let me just throw this idea out there. Why, why these 27? Because these are the books that God eternally decreed would be in the New Testament. And in so doing, these books are perfectly sufficient and adequate for every aspect of the Christian life that we will experience. 2 Timothy 3. Important text for us to hide in our hearts. I want to read that to you. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. In our New Testament canon, in our Old Testament canon, of course, all 66 books, we have everything that we need to be equipped for every good work God would have us to walk in in this life. Ephesians 2.10. God has prepared beforehand good works so that we could walk in them, right? Well, this Bible, all 66 of these Holy Spirit-inspired and divinely preserved books they provide us with everything we need to carry out the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. This is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, that God's Word is entirely sufficient for every aspect of the Christian life. So, frankly, I think in the final analysis, maybe the best argument for why these books is just God knew which books we needed which would be sufficient for us to walk in the good works he wanted us to walk in. Just a, some food for thought for you guys um, as we draw today to a conclusion.
Does anybody have any questions or comments or anything that you want to share before we close in prayer? Well, guys, it was a treat to go through this with you guys today. I look forward to picking up where we left off, Lord willing, during our time together next week. But for now, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll be dismissed for corporate worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work you did through your apostles and through um, the earliest Christians during the first century era of church history. Father, without their foundation, uh, without their, their efforts to, to proclaim the gospel, to, to spread it out of Jerusalem and Judea, to take it to the Gentiles, to enable us as Gentiles, as those who live thousands of miles from where the Roman Empire was during the first century, and for us to have believed the truths of the gospel, we recognize that without your work through those first century Christians, that couldn't be true of us, God. Had they just stayed in a holy huddle and kept the truth to themselves, Lord, the world would have never been transformed like it has been by the power of the gospel to transform spiritually dead sinners to spiritually alive in Christ and to make them like Christ so that they can be his ambassadors, his salt and light in a fallen and dying world. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you uh, that we now are your ambassadors and we have a part to play in taking the gospel to those who don't know you. God, I thank you for the people in this room, the families they represent, for the work you're doing in and through them. Father, I pray you would move powerfully in them. God, deepen their affections for you. Strengthen them to stand for you even when it's difficult. Help them to see hardships as a blessing. Comfort them in their times of need. Put people in their lives who can mentor them and shepherd them. Point them back to Christ and to your word. Father, may every time we come together and Sunday school and on Wednesday night, and even in our corporate gatherings with the, with the other members of FBC Edda, may those be a means of richly edifying these beloved brothers and sisters in this room so they might become who you've called them to be in Christ. Keep us safe as we leave now, Lord, as some go home with their families and as some go to corporate worship and prepare to carry out whatever activities you have entrusted them with for the rest of today. I just pray you keep them safe, that you would give them rest as they look to begin a new week. We thank you again for this time, Father. We commit all of uh, the rest of this Lord's Day to you and the week to come to you. May it be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.